Welcome to the Mount Zion Wesleyan Church Podcast. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and inspires you to step into the life God has for you. For more information about our church, visit us online at mountzionwesleyan.com. Go ahead and grab a seat. If you have your Bibles, will you join me in... John's Gospel, uh, chapter 18. This is week 26 of our series, The Way, where we have been walking through the Gospel of John, and we trust and we hope that it has been helpful. Last week, uh, as we began to look at verse 18, we identified four different groups of people, and I asked the question, which one do you most identify with? We had that of Christ Jesus himself. We had that of the soldiers who completely denied Jesus. We had that of Peter, who most of us, many of us identify with, where in spite of our best intentions, we find ourselves tripping over our own two feet and getting in the way of ourselves. And then we have that of Judas. And the difference between Judas and Peter was that Scripture reminds us and proclaims that Peter proclaimed that Jesus was Lord, where Judas... He simply believed that he was a good rabbi, he was a good teacher. This morning, I want us to take some time to look at the cross. The cross that we are going to look at today, it was a symbol of guilt, it was a symbol of shame. In other words, if we got in a time machine and I stood before Pilate or Caesar or one of the Roman officials in the first century... And I tried to convince them that this is how we see the cross, that an instrument that you use to represent shame and suffering, for our people and for our time, it would instead represent an invitation into right standing with God, an invitation that comes through all those who confess Christ Jesus as as Lord and Savior. If I tried to convince them that an instrument that you use to intimidate people would today be used as an invitation into a right relationship with Jesus Christ, if I tried to convince them that the instrument that you use for shame and suffering would today be viewed as salvation for anyone who believes that an instrument that you use to represent hell on earth would today be viewed as as a promise, as an invitation, as a proclamation that would represent hope and eternity face-to-face with God where there was no tears, there will be no fear. So Jesus, he was arrested. He was betrayed. He was betrayed by a friend that he loved that occupied a seat around his family table. He was then denied by his number one leader. He was puppeted before the crowds, before the religious leaders of that day. And it is upon those leaders that we really begin to see the hypocrisy that is often discovered and prominent in religiosity. You see, what we see in verse 28 that we will look at in a few moments is that the religious leaders, they refused to go into the house of Pilate. Why? Because they believed to be in the presence of a Gentile during the Passover would defile themselves. It would mark them as unclean, and therefore they could not enter into the Passover celebration. Now the irony of this is that their belief in this man-made law is all in the face and at the front of breaking commandment number one. You shall not have no other God. Commandment number three, do not use the Lord's name in vain. Commandment number six, do not murder. Commandment number nine, do not lie. Commandment number ten, thou shalt not covet. And the reason that I bring this to our attention is because I want us to recognize and to identify if there is any hypocrisy in ourselves. In other words, this is what I want to boldly say, that the word of God, it is our foundation. 
It is infallible. It is perfect. But it is not often, if ever, the word of God that creates much of the tension that exists within the church. It is man-made rules, preferences, desires, wants, unmet expectations. And we have to identify those. And we always have to place the word of God in its rightful place as a place of authority, instruction, accountability, direction, conviction. So Jesus is being punched. He is being mocked. His world it is falling apart. And what John wants to bring to the forefront at the very beginning of verse 33 is that all the while his world seems to be falling apart, he is still in control. So verse 33, So Pilate entered his headquarters again, and he called Jesus, and he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it about me? And what we're seeing here is that Jesus is in total control. And that when you are committed to living a life of righteousness, when you are faithful and when you are obedient, you don't have to defend yourself. When you are doing that of the will of the Father... You don't have to address all the critics. You don't have to allow your feathers to be ruffled. In our lives so often, we make our decisions based off what is going to produce comfort. But God never calls us to a place of comfort. He always calls us to a place of faithfulness to a place of obedience. And what I have realized in my young 43 years here on earth is rarely when I am most faithful and obedient am I, in addition, most comfortable. It is often when I am most uncomfortable that I recognize and realize that I am being most faithful and I'm being most obedient. Why? Because God will never call us to a fair fight. He always wants us to find our dependence in him and our identity in him. So verse 35, Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And once again, Christ's confidence, his identity, his purpose, his placement, his peace, it is found in God and God alone. Therefore, and the litmus test for this, is that man cannot take it away from him. When we find our confidence and our certainty and our peace and our joy in Christ and Christ alone, there is no man, no circumstance, no condition that has access to that. Nothing or no one can steal that from you when it is rooted securely in Christ and Christ alone. Verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. In my kingdom, were, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. And it's important to note here when Jesus is referring to the Jews, he's not talking about the Jewish people. He is talking in this instance about the Jewish leaders. So continuing to read, but my kingdom is not of this world. Let me ask you, is your kingdom this world? Are you a citizen of this world? Or are you a citizen of the kingdom of God? How do I know, Luke? What occupies that of your conversation with friends and with family and with acquaintances? What keeps you up at night? 
what produces fear, anxiety in you? If you are more worried about who occupies the White House than you are about who is going to be in heaven, then you are probably a kingdom of this world. If that that you talk about most is the things of this world and the pursuit of comforts of this world, then you are probably a kingdom. You are probably a citizen of this world. Or is your passion what consumes you, what keeps you up at night? Or those individuals that are close to you but far from God? And in you has been birthed this holy discontent where your desire, the time I have here on earth, I will faithfully Steward my time, my talent, my treasure, my tongue for kingdom purposes. Verse 37. And then Pilate said to him, So you are the king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose, I was born. And the purpose that Jesus is talking about, which you'll delineate in a few moments, it is for this trial. And it is the journey of the cross. And it is the sacrifice on the cross in which God's wrath was fully satisfied for all that confess Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. Continuing to read, and for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate asks one of the most probing and complexing questions of our day and generations that have come and gone. Pilate says this. He asks this question. Out of curiosity, sincerely, I believe. And it is a question that many of us have asked or are asking this morning. So Pilate responds, what is truth? The way that we can defang truth, the way that we can neuter the word truth, the reason why I believe our society and our culture is in such the shape that we find it today is because we have intentionally, strategically chosen to put a personal possessive pronoun in front of the word truth. So it's my truth. It's your truth. And nobody can identify or tell me my truth because it is based on my experience and my preferences, my wants, and my desires. There is no truth apart from Christ Jesus. He is the truth. He is the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. John chapter 14. So if you this morning are asking the question, what is truth? You must come to the realization that Christ establishes everything that is ultimate truth. All truth is based on the person and the work of Christ Jesus. So if the reality that you are experiencing, if the things that you are believing, if they contradict the word or the person or the nature or the convictions of God, it is a lie. And therefore, it is bondage. And therefore, much of the discomfort, the fear, the, in, the anxiety, the depression, the sleepless nights that you find yourself tethered to, it can be explained 
based on the reality that you have redefined what truth is apart from what God's word says truth is. Do we understand? Somebody may have told you, hey, come check this guy out. He's really funny. I'm going to be intense today, all right? So not funny today. Next week, maybe. Today, not, all right? So John 18, verse 38 After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. So the four Gospels, three synoptic Gospels, they want to be very clear. Seven times Pilate proclaims, I believe Jesus is innocent. I don't believe that Jesus has done anything anything wrong. Seven is the number of completion in the scripture. I think the biblical writers, they are wanting to remove all ambiguity in this moment. And they are wanting us to know that Pilate believes that Jesus is innocent and that he does not deserve the crucifixion that he is about to face. Then why does he slam the gavel down and say he's guilty. I think it's the same reason that Peter denied him. I think it's the same reason that Judas betrayed him. I think it's the same reason that oftentimes we deny or that we betray Jesus with our words and with our actions. What is it? What's at the root? Self-preservation of our wants And our desires, usually in pursuit of our comforts, in addition to fear of man. Many of us, we have given birth to this people-pleasing spirit. And we will compromise holy convictions God's mandate, his desire, his call upon our lives because ultimately we fear man. And hear me, fear, it is a liar. In addition to that, fear is not a feeling. It's not an emotion. Fear is. It is a spirit. And I believe that the spirit of fear, it is never of God. And it is never from God. Because it is a contradiction to the nature and the purpose and the plans and the promises of God. And the spirit of fear It has overcome Pilate in this moment. And although he believes that Jesus is innocent, he proclaims his guilt because of the fear of man. Why do you say that? Matthew chapter 27, verse 22 said, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ. This is the most important question that you will answer in your life. Who is he and what will I do with him? Will I surrender to him or will I just make him a good teacher, a right moral man? Continuing to read in verse 24 of Matthew chapter 27, so Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning. He took water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See it to yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood will be on us and his blood will be on our children. And if his blood is on you for atoning purposes, you confess his blood over your sin. That is a good thing. But if you proclaim his blood because you proclaim that he is not Lord and that he is not Savior, that he is a blasphemer, then that is bad. And that will ultimately lead to damnation. But once again, the root of this, without question, is the fear of man. And I will remind you that fear, it is not an emotion. It is a spirit. 
2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 says, For God gave us a spirit not of what? Fear, but the power and of love and of self-control. So back to John's gospel, verse 39. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, no, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas, scripture says, was a robber. Some translations say that he was an insurrectionist. Some say that he was a murderer. Some translations say that he was a thief. What history and scripture reveal is that Barabbas gathered a group of Jews with the purpose of overthrowing the Roman government so that they could take control and political control and sit on that throne. And because he was caught, he was rendered to him a death sentence. And what we have to know and what Scripture is highlighting is that each and every one of us have more in common with Barabbas than what we want to know and what we want to admit and that what we want to proclaim. In other words, each and every one of us, by nature and by nurture, we are sinners before a righteous and a holy God. Every single one of us are robbers trying to steal the glory of God. And every single one of us are insurrectionists in regard to the kingdom of God, removing him often from the throne that he rightfully should occupy in our lives and replacing him with ourselves, saying, my will be done, my desires be fulfilled. The word Barabbas... It means son of a father, meaning that Barabbas was just an ordinary sinner like you and like me. And yet Christ Jesus, he takes his place and Jesus is handed over and Barabbas goes free. And for all of us who confess Christ as Lord and Savior, that is our story An innocent man takes our place, and we go free. So John chapter 19, verse 1. And then Pilate took Jesus, and he flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arraigned him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, the king of the Jews, and they struck him. With their hands. I think growing up, when I would read that he was flogged, I I imagined him being whipped. But what we know and what the Passion of Christ tells us so well in that movie is that he was whipped with a cat of nine tails, which was a whip that had nine individual leather straps that protruded from it. And upon those leather straps, there would be bone, there would be glass, there would be sharp rocks, there would be fish-like material, fish-hook-like materials that would be attached so that it would soften up the flesh of its victim. The historian Josephus, as he would tell of other people being flogged, would often portray that of the rib cage coming out of the literal body. This is what Jesus endured. He was flogged. Scripture also says that the acacia tree was used to fashion together thorns. And it was placed on his head. The thing about the acacia tree, if you study your scripture, you'll recognize that was the same type of wood that made up much of what was seen in the tabernacle. That was the actual wood that carried around the presence of God in Israel for the Egyptians, out from the Egyptians. It literally held the presence, representation, the presence of God, and now it adorned the head of the Son of God. So verse 4 says, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Once again, saying, I think he's innocent. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Eke homo, which means behold, 
the man, once again, he's proclaiming that he is an honest and innocent rabbi, but he never surrenders to the lordship of Jesus Christ. My fear is that there's a lot of people within the sound of my voice this morning who much like Pilate, I mean, think about it. Pilate can literally smell the breath of God, but the breath of God never entered him. The spirit of God never entered him because he never fully and truly surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ. I think there is a lot of people this morning, and this is what keeps me up at night as your pastor, who would say, Luke, I've grown up in the church. I know all the songs. I know all the rituals. I've said the prayer. I've gone to the altar. I've been baptized. I serve. I give. I do all of that. And yet, you've yet to fully surrender. Meaning, that there are things in your life that you know are not of God. There are things that you are doing in this very moment that you know are not God's will, his desire. You know that they are not of his character or his nature. But you say to me, but, but Luke... I love him. I really, really love him. And my pushback, in all due respect, is I don't know that you really do. I think that you may acknowledge that he is a good teacher, that he is a moral man. But if you truly love him, it will be marked out of surrender and obedience. Meaning, that if there's something in your life that is not God's will or best for you, you will ruthlessly eliminate that and you will repent of that and you will confess that and you will grieve that, becoming more like him. But so much of our culture and our society is justification of sin. Why? Because we say, but I love him. But what about John chapter 14 that we've talked about where it says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the work that I do. So are you doing the work of God here on earth? Are you proclaiming and advancing the kingdom of God? No one gets to go in retirement no one gets to stop as long as you have air in your lungs and a beating heart in your chest. Your work here on earth is not done. And as long as there are people that is close to you and far from God, we have a work before us. John chapter 14 verse 15 says this. And this is the litmus test. For those individuals that would say, I'm living in sin. I know that this isn't what God says is right, true, holy, and righteous, but I love him. I would say, what do you do with John chapter 14, verse 15, where it says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will keep my desires. You will step into the life that I have for you. If there's anything in you that is apart from me, you will bring it to me, you will surrender it, and we will make it right together. John 19, verse six. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And then the Jews answered him, we have a law, 
And according to the law, we ought to, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. They're saying that he's blaspheming. Even though this is simply his testimony, this is who he says he is. They are taking scripture, which is found in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16. But I want you to see what they're doing. They're calling him a blasphemer. They're saying that he's misusing the word of God and he's representing it incorrectly. But listen to Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. And all the congregation will what? Stone him. But what are they yelling? Crucify him. So they are twisting through hypocrisy and manipulation they are twisting the word of God in order to achieve that that they desire, which is political control. John chapter 19, verses 8 through 9 says, When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate is looking for a way out. He's trying to find an exit strategy here. Verse 10 says, So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you or authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me unto you, he has the greater sin. And what Pilate is saying, or what Jesus is saying to Pilate in this moment is, bless your heart. You think you're a big deal. You think you are a big deal in the cosmos. You have the illusion of control and power and authority, but you know nothing of the sovereignty of God. Verse 12 says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone makes himself a king and opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat. He is about to make an official decree based on what? The fear of man. He's about to compromise convictions because of the fear of man. He sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the stone pavement. Verse 14. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. And it was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. The very thing they accused Jesus of, blasphemy, they are now doing. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. The same crowd that the week previous screamed out to the top of their lungs, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us. They are now screaming, crucify him. The same religious leaders that accused Jesus of blaspheming. The confession of a Christian is what? Jesus is Lord. The confession of a Roman citizen is Caesar is Lord. They are betraying their confidence and their convictions in pursuit of their own self-preservation and desires. So Jesus had two primary betrayers here at the end of the Gospels. Judas betrayed him with a kiss, and Pilate betrayed him to death. And the Bible and history tells us that both men took their own lives. Why? Don't you see? The peace the joy, the identity, the satisfaction, the contentment that you desire 
that you want, it cannot be found or sustained apart from Christ Jesus. And both these men denied Christ, betrayed him, and that produced hopelessness. And hopelessness, void, it will always end badly. And it did for these men. So when you feel this way, and when you recognize the dysfunction that exists in your relationships, may you recognize that the antidote is Christ and Christ alone. The solution, it is Christ and Christ alone. Verse 16, so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the school, which in the Aramaic is Golgotha. So Jesus is carrying this 100-pound beam down the Via Della Rosa. In 1850, there was a general by the name of General Gordon who was looking out of his hotel window. And he recognized in the mountains what looked like a school. He was staying with Horatio Spafford who wrote, uh, It is well with my soul. He believed that this was the actual place in which Christ Jesus was, was buried. So they bought this tract of land. And there they found a garden tomb. The irony of this is at the top of this hill is a Muslim cemetery in which Christians are not allowed. And at the bottom of this hill, it's a bus transit. So this place, it is holy and it is sacred. There's also tension that exists there. And it is also this movement. And it's filled with the smell of carbon monoxide. It's not always welcoming. And you think for a moment, man, that's a shame. And then you recognize the irony in that, in which it was pretty fair representation of what was being witnessed that very day. Verse 18 says, And they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. And I always wondered why the crucifixion didn't get any more ink than that. They crucified him. That's all it says. But what I've come to recognize is that in that time, you didn't have to explain the crucifixion to anybody. Everybody knew what the crucifixion was. Crucifixion is the where we get our root word excruciating. It was Designed by the Persians in 700 BC, it was perfected by the Romans. And it was absolutely, absolutely a terrible, most excruciating way to die. I think also one of the reasons they don't talk a whole lot about the crucifixion and delineate the details is because it is fully delineated in Psalm 22 through prophecy. In fact, the Old Testament has over 300 messianic prophecies, all pointing to the coming Messiah. So verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin, Greek, which all the prominent language. Pilate did not recognize that he was a part of the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. In other words, get over it. It's done. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven into one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but let us instead cast lots to see who should get it. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. This is fulfilling prophecy. Psalm 22 verse 18 says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Continuing to read in John's Gospel 19, verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus where was his mother and his mother's sister, and Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. 
You've heard me say it countless times. It's important that we recognize the mother of Jesus was sitting there watching his baby boy be crucified on a cross. You know it's true if you were a parent. There is no pain like kid pain. And the mother of Jesus watched every excruciating moment. And then Jesus said to his disciples, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciples took her to his own home. Jesus, even in this moment, having so much going on, he's caring for the needs of others. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all was about, was now finished, he said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. Once again, Psalm 22, verse 15 says, my strength was dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust and you have left me for dead. Once again, fulfilling prophecy that was written thousand years before crucifixion was even a thing, before a cross had even been constructed. Verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on the hyssop branch and they held it to his mouth. I used to read this when I was a kid and think, man, they even started feeling bad for him, the soldiers. They're just trying to bring some relief But then upon further study, you realize that wine vinegar was used as a disinfectant and that they would, after using the restroom, that they would cleanse themselves with a sponge and they would disinfect it with wine vinegar. So that that they offered the Son of Man was basically used to toilet paper and they stuffed it in his mouth. Verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Notice that he gave it up. It was not taken from him. He gave it up. And since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. They would do so that basically they would slump down and they would suffocate. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. So therefore, they did not break his legs. Once again, this is fulfillment of prophecy. Exodus chapter 12, verse 46 said, Each Passover lamb must be eaten in the house. Do not carry any of its meat inside and do not break any of its bones. Verse 34 of John's Gospel, chapter 19, says, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Once again, to fulfill prophecy. Psalm 22, verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. Verse 35, He who saw it bore witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may believe. John is saying, I wrote it. I saw it for myself. It was a firsthand account. Verse 36, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones were broken. Numbers chapter 9, verse 12 says, they must not leave any of the lamb until the next morning. And they must not break any of its bones. They must follow all the normal regulations concerning the Passover. Verse 37. And again, another scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. Referring to Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10. Which says, Then I will pour out my spirit of grace and prayer on the family of David. And on the people of Jerusalem. They will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as for the only son. They will grieve bitterly for him and the firstborn son who has died. Also in Revelation chapter 1 verse 7, look, he comes within the clouds of heaven, and everyone will see him, even though he was pierced, and all the nations of the world will mourn him. Yes, they will mourn him. As we gather around the Lord's table this morning, and if you do not have your communion elements, if you would just simply lift your hands, our ushers would be glad to bring those to you. But this is my heart's plea. I believe that there are people within the sound of my voice this morning 
that you have yet to confess Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That you believe that he is a good man, that he is a righteous teacher, but you have yet to bend your knee in full surrender. That there are areas of your life that you have yet to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. One of the beautiful things about the communion table that we have come to recognize is there is a seat that is made available to each person. There's an empty seat around this table that makes up the family of God for you this morning. One of the things that we are called to do as we enter into communion is we are called to search our hearts. And if there is anything that is in us that is not of God, we're to pray, God, will you allow us to see it? Can we grieve it because of how it has impacted our friends and our family and our community, but most importantly, how has it affected my relationship with you and how I see you and how I see myself? And then we are to confess it. And then we are to repent of it. It also is an invitation to recognize that you are not alone. No matter what you have done, no matter where you have been, you are welcome here. And you are loved. You are loved by this community, but more importantly, you are loved by Christ Jesus. How do you know that, Luke? Because he went to the cross for you and for me. And there is no greater love than that to give up one's life for another. So with every head bowed and with every eye closed, if you have yet to confess Christ as your Lord and Savior, if surrender to his lordship has yet to mark your life, if there is a thing, a relationship, a person, a, an addiction, a sin that is represented in your life, but it is not God's best for you. It is not of him. It is against his nature. It is against his desire. May you see it in this moment. May you grieve it in this moment. May you confess it in this moment. And may you repent of it in this moment. And may you recognize that this table that you have been given an invitation to join around, it is larger than you could possibly know. And therefore, there is the family of God made up of brothers and sisters who desire to come beside you, to hold you accountable, to hold your arms up. It is this desire for oneness, for unity. But church, don't miss this. It all begins with a personal relationship with Christ Jesus. So if you have yet to confess him as Lord and Savior, before you join us at this table, may today be the day of your salvation. Scripture says it's not a fancy prayer. It's not about coming to the altar. It's about believing in your heart that when Jesus went to the cross, it counted for you. It's about confessing with your mouth that he is Lord. And when you make him Lord, what is produced in your life is faithful obedience and if you made that decision this morning would you let somebody know would you let me know we would love to be able to celebrate that reality with you and when you are ready and as we as the family of God as we gather around this table may you take the bread May you remember Christ, body, bruised, beaten, pierced on your behalf and on mine.
you may partake when you are ready. And may you take the cup in remembrance of Christ's atoning blood who was poured out on your behalf and on mine. When you are ready, remember and drink. So Father, as we, the family of God, have gathered around this table this morning, we have done so in remembrance of the provision that you have provided because of the cross, because of your sacrifice. We also sit around the table with family and friends believing that you have called us to be one like you are one Father, Spirit, and Holy Ghost. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, may you be glorified in our song and may you be glorified with our lives. And Father, once again, we pray that anything that is in us that is not of you, we will not settle, we will not be content, but instead, through the working of your Holy Spirit dwelling in us, we will ruthlessly eliminate it. And we pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all God's people say, amen. Would you stand to your feet as we close in worship? Thanks for listening to the Mount Zion Wesleyan Church podcast. We hope this message has inspired you to take a next step in your walk with Jesus. For more messages or to watch our full worship gathering on demand, visit us online at mountzionwesleyan.com.